So the way weight is distributed and where fullness lies really can change the fit. So there, that's what is hard about alpha sizing, which is small, medium, large, right? It's like saying, hey, this is a big window of what could fit into this box we're calling a size small, but, um, you know, that means someone who's a size small might not fit it and another one might. So it's hard, you guys, like it's hard. If you go back in time and fashion to the days of yore, there were, you mostly had clothes made for you. If there was any ready to wear, like in the early uh, 1900s, right, it got tailored to you. So I would encourage people to stop thinking that they should be able to walk into a store and find something that fits them. Ideally, yes, but like that's just not the reality. Find yourself a great tailor. You know, your local um, dry cleaners will most likely be sufficient enough, especially if you need just like a waist taken in or something let out slightly, you know, basic alterations, zipper replacement, etc. Um, find someone. It's worth to spend that extra $10, $15, $20, knowing that you're going to feel great in it, right? When something fits good, you're, you feel like a million dollars. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Flavor of Fashion podcast. I'm your host, Belle, and today I'm joined by one of my former FITM instructors, Meredith Petro. Meredith has worked as a technical designer in the fashion industry for many years for companies like ModCloth and Lucky Brand. In this episode, we talk about everything from fit and technical design to how to properly care for your clothing and make it last, manufacturing overseas, e-commerce versus brick and mortar, and so much more. I'm sure you already noticed, but I did want to give a quick disclaimer to let you know that the audio in this episode is a bit distorted since I accidentally recorded it too loudly and not with my usual recording method. I've edited it to the best of my ability to improve the sound quality, but since it's a bit distorted, I'd either recommend turning your volume down a bit or listening to this episode out loud instead of with headphones. This is the first part of this episode, so stay tuned for part two coming next week. And this is also the last of my pre-recorded episodes from last year, so there might be a little bit of info from then, as well as the episode next week with Meredith. But without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Meredith. Welcome to the Flavor of Fashion podcast. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. I wanted to get started and just have you talk a little bit about yourself, um, where you're from. I know you mentioned you're from Ohio, but you currently live in Los Angeles. Um, and maybe just a little bit about your fashion industry background. I know you're also a FITM alumni. Yes. So I am originally from the Cleveland area, and I moved out to Los Angeles right after I graduated from high school uh, to attend FITM. Um, it was kind of blind back then. There was no social media and there was just a website. So it was kind of taking a risk and moving away from everyone I knew. Um, but it ended up paying off. Um, I have got, I have two degrees from FITM. I have a merchandise product development degree as well as, um, the international manufacturing and product development advanced program. Um, and after that, I've worked in and out of many companies uh, over my career, 
big, small, medium, independent, super corporate, a little bit of everything. Um, I've primarily spent most of my time within the realm of technical design, which I'm sure we'll dive into what that is in a little bit. Um, but overall, I just uh, have a good grasp of the, the garment industry as a whole and have seen a lot of changes in the time that I've been employed. Um, and I've also, how I met you was you were one of my students at Bidum. Um, I got the pleasure of teaching a fit course uh, during your denim program. Mm -hmm. And I got to share all the nerdy things about technical design uh, with everyone, which was great. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's just me in a nutshell, I'd say. Yeah, I really enjoyed your class. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast as well. Um, I know Thank you, that you, thank you so much. of course, <laughs> I know that you spent quite a bit of time at Mod Cloth. So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about your experience working there? And I'm guessing you worked in technical design there. I did. Yeah. Um, I started as a technical designer there and moved up to senior tech in my time. I was there for about six years, which is a lifetime in mm -hmm. the garment industry. So I was there during its rise, fall, rise, fall. I mean, it, I saw a lot happen in a short period of time, relatively speaking, at that company. Um, Modcloth will probably always be my favorite job of all time. <laughs> uh, the people that I worked with were amazing. To this day, I'm still good friends with a lot of people that I worked with, um, Everyone really seemed to enjoy working there, which is very rare. It also started off as like an e-commerce company. So we had a lot of benefits of an internet company, if you will. Um, originally, one of their headquarters was in San Francisco before they opened up the LA office. So they were recruiting mostly tech people. So we had a lot of tech uh, benefits that a lot of fashion brands don't have. So that was really cool to work for basically a, a young company. Uh, most people were around my age that worked there. And it was like a really fun place to be and for a good part of the time. It, it kind of went south towards the end, but for a good part of the time, um, they really invested in their employees. We had a lot of perks. We did a lot of fun things together. Even like the team building activities we did were fun. So I'm very, very forever fortunate to have worked for that company because it showed me what a great company could be. And I always try to take some of those principles, especially surrounding company culture and like what is what it means to work for a company and how fostering a good culture can really no matter how bad things get, you'll have people that stay, which is invaluable. You know, turnover, replacing people costs a lot of money because it's mostly time invested in training someone new and getting them on board. So having a great culture is worth a million billion dollars, but so few people do it. So I'm really, really grateful that for that experience, and I try my best to pull threads from it and try to push it into wherever I go because it, it truly was a special place and time to be. 
yeah, it sounds like a really great place to work. I remember um, touring Mod Cloth once when I was at Fitum, and the campus was really beautiful too in downtown Los Angeles. I think I saw, I don't remember what the top floor was. Maybe it was like design or something, maybe technical design, but you guys had a really beautiful view of the whole city. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think, we do a field trip there? Was that when you came? It might have been before, it might have been in product development, I think. Okay. But yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. It's like walking distance from FITM, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It made it very convenient when I was teaching because I would just leave the office and walk down the street and I'd be there. So yeah, yeah. it was great. Great location. Everything was great. Did you work on like all the different lines or were you specific to like dresses or tops? In my time there, I touched everything. Um, But it was very interesting. So the amount of change that the product went through and like the business strategy in the time I was there, it was a lot. It changed pretty frequently. And one of the things when I arrived, they had about 40%. No, it was probably more than that. It was probably like 60% maybe was outside product. So other brands that they, the buyers would buy, And we would generally not fit what we call the reg sizes, which is like your straight sizing. Um, I feel like that's a a terrible way to describe it, but those are your, you know, 0, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, right? So that's like regular sizing, as it's called in the industry. Um, But the plus sizes, we would take that, we would say, hey, brand, whatever, we love your product, and we our mission at Modcloth was to have everything in a full size range, so extra small through 4X, um, which at the time was groundbreaking and still kind of is, to be honest, but it poses its own set of challenges for sure. Um, however, they would say, hey, brand, we like your product. We want to offer it in plus size. So we had a select amount of vendors that would say, okay, We'd like to do plus product for you as well. So that stuff would get fit internally because it's such a new, I put that in quotes, new product category, um, meaning the industry has mostly uh, not paid attention to it for decades and decades and decades. So we didn't trust the companies to just like create this great plus fit, right? We wanted to standardize it and make sure that what we were offering was actually going to fit people. So that was really important to us. So that's kind of how it started. The other product was internal product. A lot of brands have what's known as like private label product, right? Mm -hmm. So it might not have like, like Target's a great example. It doesn't have like Target label on it, right? It has Massimo, Exhilaration. Now they have a million new brands that I don't even know what they are. Um, but those are private label, so it doesn't have Target's name on it, but Target is the one that designs, develops, and they control more or less the fit approval process. So we had at ModCloth brands that didn't say ModCloth, but the, and there were I think there were four different labels that we put these products under. And I thought it was really unfortunate because ModCloth was one of those brands where people were just die-hard customers, right? Like, they were proud to shop at ModCloth. So the fact that a lot of the customers buying product under the B&Dot label didn't know that it was, like, 
mod cloth proprietary was just shocking to me because I was like, these girls would love something that says mod cloth on it, right? Like that, that would be great. So in the time I was there, we fully transitioned. We got rid of all of those labels and we created the mod cloth label. So we had our own product and that ended up being a good chunk. I want to say at one point, internal product was around 75% of the offering. So it grew a lot. So you can only imagine there's, that's a huge shift in strategy, right? Going from like a buying organization to a product development organization. So when I say buying organization, that means I'm a buyer. I go up to markets. I go to, you know, magic in Las Vegas. I go to the LA Mart. And I look at showrooms and I pick things out and then we resell them. Traditionally, like a Macy's would be a a buying merchandising organization, right? But transferring that into like a product development, it's, it's hard because you had people, the OG people there didn't understand how a product development type company had to be set up and how to be run and what timelines and things like that were feasible. So there was definitely some, you know, rockiness in that transition of shifting from just buying to then product development. So uh, like I said, I mean, I could probably write a book on this. Like I, it was such a great experience because you got to see all of this happen and like what worked, what didn't work. Like we tried so many crazy things and, I mean, it was just a whirlwind of experience. <laughs> so, when I, was... I don't want to bore anyone with all the details. <laughs> no, no. I think it's really interesting. I feel like other people too. But um, when I was obsessed with Montclos dresses in high school, it wasn't necessarily like my style. I don't think I would wear it, but I could like appreciate all the different patterns and colors and sure. stuff. Um, but around what time was that when they transitioned from just buying to product development? So I started in 2014, um, and they had kind of started that transition at that time, but I think we launched Mod Cloth Label in either 2015 or 2016. Okay. So it was, it was probably 2015. It was pretty early on in my time there. So it was it was just like, all right, we're doing it. We got a new CEO in, and he was like, this is the plan, and it was just full speed ahead. So um there were good things and bad things that happened because of that, but all good learning experiences. Um, one of the most interesting things that we did, which was a pretty novel concept going from a completely e-commerce setup to, um, eventually we had brick and mortar stores, but before we got there, we did these pop-up concepts. So we would, we, the first one was in LA. It was in the base floor of our building in the old bank there's an old bank at the bottom floor of that building it's gorgeous beautiful 1920s building the ceiling is wood carved gold painted just one of the most beautiful buildings in downtown and we took over the bank which was empty and i believe is still empty it just it, it, oh, man it was just gorgeous in there the original like everything was like marble and just very overly ornate and we converted it into a uh, we called it Moncloth IRL and it was an interesting concept because 
it wasn't a true pop-up shop where you could actually like buy things and take them home. What we did uh, was we had a, a subset of our products. So we had like our best-selling styles that we like ran over and over and over again. And then this is where we started introducing the mod cloth label in. So we had every single style that we wanted to offer in this pop-up shop in every single size. And what you would do is you would try it on. So our team, everyone had to work it. Our team manned the fit rooms, of course, because uh, technical design is very focused on fit. And they tried things on. We'd help them figure out what their size was. We had measuring tapes to, you know, at our size chart, help them select the right size, help them put outfits together, and then they got free two-day shipping. So this concept ended up being the model for our brick-and-mortar stores. There weren't very many brick-and-mortar stores, but we started with more permanent pop-up shops where they'd pop up for like three months, four months at a time. Um, but it was always the same thing. In order to maintain low overhead and low inventory, you didn't have to inventory plan, which is one of the downfalls of brick and mortar. You have to like say, okay, I'm going to allocate this many for e-commerce and this many for the stores. And what ends up happening is, you know, you you put too much in one basket and the, the scales tip. Nowadays with inventory, like EDI systems, it's a little easier where like you go in the store, they don't have it. Another mm-hmm. store, they can look up, another store will ship to you or you can buy it online. But back in the day, that wasn't a thing that could happen. So if you put too much inventory in your stores and you, you know, you couldn't sell through it, it was just dead money basically on the floor. So this concept got rid of that. It was, you know, we, we started booking a little deeper in units to help supply the store, the business that was driving from the stores, but it was basically just driving e-commerce only. So it was really smart. Um, it was a really smart way to go about it because at that time, everyone was closing their stores. So everyone was like, you're opening stores? Like, that's crazy. <laughs> but it was a different way to go about it. And I, I thought that was a really cool, um, novel, new thing. So that, that was awesome. That is really cool. I feel like a lot more brands now are doing like a lot of pop-up shops too, which are, I guess, kind of similar to that concept um, yeah. which is a good way to tap into your customer base. But, um, I also do feel like, I know you mentioned plus sizes and I feel like you guys were one of the first brands to offer like a wide range of plus sizes and in clothes that people would actually want to wear, which is yeah. really cool. For sure. It was, um, a niche mm-hmm. it, it, surprisingly, like it shouldn't be, but, um, you know, mod cloth, the vibe, the vibe of mod cloth original OG mod cloth was retro inspired as time went on you know that kind of got watered down watered down I mean towards the end we were essentially a fast fashion brand we worked on a uh six season cadence so every season was uh two months and within each month were um different deliveries so it was like a lot of product (laughs) We were on a constant development production cycle. I mean, it, it never, the only time it stopped was during Chinese New Year. <laughs> um, so it was it was a lot. You don't realize you're necessarily doing fast fashion until you step away and you're like, we were creating hundreds of styles every month, basically. Like, that's a lot of product. Um, 
but that's you know that's one of the things that e-commerce changed about the retail game is the speed i mean i that is one thing that i really can think about and like from the beginning of my career to like where it went wow like the speed it's like someone pressed fast forward and just go 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 it increased so much from the beginning to where it wound up i mean i started my career in junior so that was just freaking crazy no matter what but my second big job was at lucky brand and that was like traditional retail they had four seasons you know your fall winter spring summer three deliveries within each season very traditional um the speed at which we did things very slow compared to like today it was just it was a good snapshot of how things were um and to see it it changed but it also tells you like lucky brand did not do so well and part of the reason was they were very late to embrace technology they were investing money in stores when people were investing in websites right they were like e-commerce like let's put let's make the stores cool and everyone was like are you sure about that (laughs) um so it was it was interesting you know retail in general if you look back you know 40 years ago the difference between what retail was in 1980 versus where it was in like 1995 not much different you had more specialty retail stores in the mall you know the advent of like lifestyle brands really kicked off in the 90s started in the 80s but there wasn't much change right it is like the same stuff same process old school so when you have that generation in the early 2000s now being at the top of companies they were not very quick to pivot because why would they they've never had to do it before so that's a really interesting thing to watch is like how people have like either you know basically like pivoted or died you know um and it's only going to continue and get crazier from here i mean who knows what technology has in store for us so that's one thing that's been really interesting to like step back and like really evaluate over my career like those types of changes have been very significant like paradigm shifts that I've witnessed so definitely I feel like it's hard enough to keep up with you know just those few drops a year obviously you have the whole product development process and like manufacturing overseas and fitting on fit models and stuff but then also at the same time you know that is so much faster now and there's so many more drops like you were saying and then also trying to keep up with technology and trying to keep up with the changes in the industry so it's like you're working on the stuff you need to work on now but you're also like how are we going to prevent ourselves from becoming irrelevant or our you know business dying we need to keep up with the business operations today but you know if we don't pay attention to this we're not going to exist in a few years or so so yeah it's a lot it's kind of like um the music industry right Mm -hmm. like there's never going to be a global superstar ever again right we just there's too many people out there like there's 
you know, Spotify and YouTube and like all these ways you can, and TikTok, I'm not on it, but I hear that's where all the music is. Um, you know, so there's all these ways to get out there. There's not going to be a Madonna, you know what I mean? Like, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. And, mm-hmm. and retail is the same way, especially here in LA, you know, LA had like those big brands like Guess and BCBG and, you know, those kind of like mainstay places, but also like a lot of like smaller, like manufacturing places as well. But those big, like this, like idea that like a brand can have this giant market share, it's just like, doesn't exist anymore. And that's where, like you mentioned drops, like that whole concept of drops is like, comes from like the Instagram model, Mm -hmm. right? It's like people who have created their own brands and they don't follow any seasonal cadence. It's a drop. Like if it's ready, like sometimes these these companies they plan it and then usually like the ones that are just like making money off their likeness, it's just kinda like, well I wanted to make a hoodie and so this is the design and now I have it and now I'm gonna sell it. So it's it's fascinating. Like when I worked at the factory, the um LA factory, we worked with mostly small either independent brands or like influencers who wanted to do their own stuff and like actually like design clothes not just like make Mm t-shirts so it was really interesting getting to know that side of the business because I was just like so overworking for companies at that point where I was like would be cool to like help other people with their stuff it's just as crazy but it's such a different side of the industry that I was like wow I had I was a true novice at that job because uh, it was just a whole brand new world of things I had never encountered before. So as crazy as that job was, I am very thankful because I really did uh, learn so much than I ever have. Um, So I'm grateful for that, at least. (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting to kind of see things be put more in the hands of like, not necessarily like industry professionals you know it's like kind of anyone could create a fashion brand now especially if you have at least like some foundation knowledge I feel like because it's like going to fit them it's like okay I have this skill set and yeah I could go get a traditional nine-to-five and like be a technical designer or do product development or any of those kinds of things but also you know like I know that you've done a lot of consulting work so it's like you can also consult and like help somebody else create a brand or like help an influencer create some merch product you know and so it's more like you don't have to necessarily go through like guests now to get some really cool jeans you can go to some small indie brand or have someone like make a custom pair for you someone who maybe necessarily didn't even go to school for fashion or doesn't have experience in the fashion industry is now like a designer which is kind of cool yeah yeah no it's definitely um it levels the playing field in a way. I mm-hmm. think there are people getting into it that really don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. And uh, it's a little frustrating when you're trying to work with people like that because they really just, they don't understand. Mm-hmm. So, like, conceptually, like, I think it's really important to, like, have a good base knowledge of, like, just how things happen. How do you make something? Right? Yeah. That's so, so important. Um, and getting foundational experiences that if you do go into a consulting field that you have, you have experience to draw on, right? But also to your point, it, it's such a different world out there. You can do so much more because of 
the accessibility of everything. So it's, you know, it's, a, it's like anything. It's good and bad at the mm-hmm. same time. You know, like it, it's really exciting. And I think it's great to like hear and working with the students, like you guys all were super entrepreneurial. Like that never even entered my mind when I was in school. Like it, that wasn't an option. It was like, you go to school, you get a job, you know, and like the way I was raised, like my father worked for the same company for like 25 years, you know, that was the thing where you just find, you're supposed to find a company and work there until you die. Um, I quickly learned that fashion was not like that. Um, but it's, it's so much has changed. So it is really exciting. Like there are a lot of options and you don't know five years from now, like, I don't know if my job will exist five years, like who knows. Right. Mm -hmm. So like we were talking earlier, that ability to like pick up new things and pivot and like, it's all about applying your experience to something else. Like sometimes people think like working in fashion is very like non-transferable and it's actually viewed that way. I had a friend of mine she was in technical design she decided hey I'm done with the apparel business like we all reached that point where we're like I can't do this anymore um some idiots like myself just stay in it but like she got out she got her MBA um Mm -hmm. from UCLA you know went into it like in her already like halfway through her career right she just was like "Eh, not feeling this anymore I want to do something different so she gets her MBA and she was a she was a manager at Seven Jeans. Like she was up there. She managed a team of pattern makers, sample sewers, and tech designers. Like she was like up there. But people are writing off her experience because they see fashion and they're like, that can't mean anything. Mm-hmm. You know, all you guys do is shop, right? It's like, no, you guys, like we do everything and it's crazy and it's fast paced and you have to put up with so much. Like it's unfortunate that a lot of outside industries don't view it that way. But if you really were to sit down and think about it, it's like, yeah, I mean, I've gained a lot of like project management skills because what is developing apparel? It's a project management. Each season's a project and you have to make it on time. So you have to address all of the roadblocks that come your way and make sure that you can deliver. So it's the same thing. It's just a different language. So never feel like you're stuck or trapped or anything because you can always pivot and we all will have to. I totally agree. impossible not to. Yeah. And I feel like in product development, though, we did get quite a bit of um, business skills. So I think that definitely transfers over because it's kind of like a mix of design and business. But also to your point of, you know, we don't know if our job is going, if our job exists yet, or what our job's going to be in five, ten years from now, if we're going to be doing the same thing, um, like, I remember in high school or middle school, one of my teachers saying, like, for some of you, your jobs might not even exist yet, which is so true for, you know, I worked Mm -hmm. in, like, social media management for a bit, and that was not a thing at all when I was a kid, like, Instagram was just starting, obviously, the internet was new, um, so... It's interesting to see how that's, like, a new career path that people are navigating and that there's going to be something new uh, later on that will be a job that doesn't exist now. Definitely. And it's also, like, worth noting that it's a global industry. And most things today are global. 
for better or for worse. And this is where, when we look to the future, I see potential problems because we see right now, even with the war right now in uh, Ukraine, right, the disruption that that's caused in Europe in general, getting, um, you know, natural gas. And uh, Ukraine's a big uh, grain producer, and they ship to Africa. So we see how one conflict can have global ramifications, right? You know, not to, like, mitigate or make that conflict seem, like, insignificant, but that's one conflict. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, like, it could be a global conflict. It could be climate change, you know? Most of our stuff is shipped either on boats or on airplanes. What happens when oil is gone? So there's a lot of, like, things that we really have to think of, um, and the fashion industry is such an interesting thing where, you know, in the 80s, in the early 80s, most clothing, I think it's around, don't quote me, but I believe it was around 80% of clothing was manufactured in the United States, Mm -hmm. okay, at the beginning of the 80s. And in such a short period of time, by the end of the 90s, it was mostly overseas, right? And a lot of things played into that, technology being one of them. But it's also worth thinking, like, can we sustain ourselves if it's just us? Like, could we, you know, clothes, obviously, okay, not as important as food, but (laughs) it is really interesting to think, hey, you know, this global world that we live in, it's great because it does allow you to do so many different things. But on the other side, what could be the potential problems? So, you know, once again, people think fashion is blah, 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 but like, no, you have to think about world conflicts. Um, Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with factories uh, in the third world, you know, there might be a mudslide and you can't get your goods out. I mean, there's you have to be on top of political stuff, world stuff, trade, business. I mean, it's everything because it's a global business, a global industry. So it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating to me. Like, where, where are we headed? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, especially with technical design. I know that you deal with manufacturers a lot so it's like learning how to communicate to a manufacturer who maybe doesn't speak very good English or maybe doesn't really understand English at all or um you know like I know that you post on your Instagram a lot like patterns that you'll send for fit corrections and they come back completely (laughs) the opposite of what you were asking for so it's like navigating a language barrier navigating you know, like, how am I going to communicate? I remember that you would emphasize a lot in class, like, be very specific. Kind of, like, try to keep your words short so that it's like, this is exactly what I want, and there's less room for error in terms of communicating, like, a fit correction or something or something for manufacturing. But um, I totally agree with the global aspect that, you know, it's like, okay, if you're producing overseas, you're manufacturing overseas, like what country are you manufacturing in? Like, there was the Bangladesh factory collapse, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's like that... Obviously, that's a horrible thing that happens, but people are also going to have to decide for their businesses, like, okay, what are we going to... How are we going to respond to this? Like, how are we still going to meet our deadlines because there's money in other people's jobs on the line, you know? So how are we kind of like problem solving too you learn those skills as well for sure um dealing with overseas manufacturing yes yeah yeah. you never you never really know um one of the biggest disruptions actually happened when i was working in domestic Mm -hmm. um because 
cotton uh, grown in China became a huge issue um, because of the basically enslavement of the Uyghur Muslims in um, eastern, no, sorry, western China. Um, it's they're like a Muslim minority in China, and they basically, more or less, although the Chinese government fully denies, um, they they force them to do forced labor. They're, they're essentially slaves. So that's the cotton growing region, or primary cotton growing region of China. Now, a lot of uh, textile mills are in Los Angeles, knit mills. So jerseys, French terry, you know, you name it, rib fabric, a lot of that is manufactured here. But the yarns used to make that fabric come from China, mostly. You get them from Korea and like other places in Asia, as well as America, but it's obviously more expensive. Um, but that disruption of not being able to get Chinese cotton yarn caused prices to skyrocket for domestic fabrics. I mean, it was week to week. You know, I'd work with my vendor and he was like, I can't guarantee this price until you book it. Like, if you book it, like, put give us a PO, then I can confirm that that's the price. But, like, he's like, I can only give you this price for a week because it was changing weekly. And being in a business model where we were giving quotes to our clients and then they needed to review them and decide if they wanted to move forward, it was really touch and go where we had to build in a buffer because we didn't know, you know, we didn't want to lose out on our margin. So we had to like buff it up so that we could actually make a profit. It was crazy. So you never know when these things are going to happen. And like to think like, Hey, we're producing here in LA using textiles made in LA, but we're still facing complications due to things happening halfway across the country, halfway across the world. So you're, you're not isolated anymore. It, you're part of the, the global economy, whether you want to be or not. Exactly. Um, and I think it's interesting. I'm not sure whether we talked about this in your class or a different class, but um, it's interesting all the costs that go into just making one garment. And then obviously you have to consider like the purchase order. Like, is there a minimum purchase order? Do we have to order a certain amount of units or like spend a certain amount to be able to even produce this garment? Um, yeah, but like considering okay like the fabric is just one part of the cost of the garment and like the trim the uh obviously the labor is a huge part of the cost um freight but and then obviously you need to make a profit as well and I think that's something that a lot of people don't consider when they're purchasing clothes especially if they want to produce ethically produce clothes or maybe like organic cotton or higher um quality fabric just like how many costs go into making that garment and then on top of that the company needs to make a profit so it's like this is why and then inflation <laughs> you know right. everything else going on so and what you were talking about like the cost of goods changing from week to week based on resources so I yes. think people don't consider for any kind of product like how many yeah. costs go into just making or transporting on that one product before it gets to the consumer um and that's why it's so expensive. Yeah, I think uh, you nailed it with freight. That's one mm. thing that really yeah. has caused, you know, we you'll go to the store and you're like, everything's expensive these days. That's why. That's a big piece of it. Um, and primarily in the garment industry, what happened when that calendar sped up, right? We're talking about how it used to be really slow and manageable and I oh, lust for those days. But we're not there, right? So 
all the speed to market, being able to react to sales and trends and all the stuff, right? Like timeline got shorter and shorter and shorter. So more often than not, you're airing goods. This became a very common practice in the aughts and oddies when fast fashion was like exploding. Everything was aired. But transportation costs were so much lower. So although airing goods always cost more than putting on a boat, it still like was manageable. So now you really get slapped hard if you have to air goods in, right? Like it costs a lot of money. And also you have to think, you know, I know some of your questions later, we're going to touch on sustainability. I mean, this is a big thing to think about when your clothes are made on another continent, you know, think of all the fossil fuels that are burned to get your goods from there. Like, it's got to leave the factory. It's got to get on a truck. It's, the truck's got to cross from wherever that factory is to a port. And it's got loaded on a ship or airplane, which also is a huge carbon emitter. Cross the ocean, get off, uh, get put on a, either a truck or a train, and get transported to wherever its destination is, right? It's crazy that that happens, but it does, right? I mean, that's how we get everything. That's how... You can get strawberries in December, right? They're from Chile, (laughs) you know? But, like, someone puts fruit on a plane, most likely, (laughs) to send it to America. Like, that's nuts. You used to never be able to get strawberries in the winter. It was like, if you saw them in the store, you'd be like, I don't want this. This is weird, right? Right. So we just live in this day where you can get anything at any time. But I think it comes at a big cost. And we don't, as consumers... You don't think about it, right? You go to the supermarket. Well, shit, I love strawberries. Of course I'm going to buy them in December, right? They're there. But we we don't often step back and think what it actually took to get that product here. And then on top of it, why is it so cheap, mm-hmm. right? We need to start thinking more about that. Why, why can't I go to Target and buy a T-shirt for $5? Should I be able to? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we, I know we all love a good deal, but like anything that seems too good to be true probably is. It means someone didn't get paid. Yep, I was just gonna say that. It means someone doesn't <laughs> didn't get paid. Yeah. yeah, and that's why it's so cheap. Yep, mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. Okay. I mean, right. and I'm sure you know more of the like maybe up to date statistics on this, but um, yeah, like garment workers, like people working in factories, sewing, um in other countries make like I don't know pennies a day maybe like not even enough to buy like food like they maybe make I don't know what like $12 a month or something in US dollars yeah. something horrible like that so and they're I mean, working a recent story about Shein I, I heard something about Shein I haven't looked at it super recently but yeah it's a lot about them it's awful but um <laughs> it really I get it people need stuff they like buying stuff but like there's certain brands that I just cannot endorse Mm -hmm. at all um and it's not like here's the thing like I know there's people that have to go to Walmart have to go to Target and they have to buy the five dollar t-shirt because they can't afford anything else and that's fine I'm glad that stuff exists for them but it still doesn't mean that you can't think about it and think of ways in your life to address this and more than likely, you know, a lot of these fast fashion brands, people of low means are not shopping there, right? It's the pe- it's the people that, like, want to buy everything and want to be super on trend and want to buy something for this specific occasion, you know? Right. Um, 
she and it just came out and it was not surprising to anybody in the know um but the the wages like the the amount of hours they make they make their employees work like a whole month they get like one yeah. day off i think i did see that yeah they make like I don't know, it's some, like, crazy low amount, and if they make mistakes, they get wages mm. held, withheld from their paycheck. I mean, just really awful. <laughs> it all comes at a price, so you have to just decide whether or not, you know, that's worth it to you. Um, it, it's it's sad that it is that way, but unfortunately, we're in such, like, a consumeristic culture. You know, if you... I'm sure, like, in L.A., maybe you were in an old apartment or something, and the closets are this big, right? Mm-hmm. No one had clothes. Yeah. You know, you had, like, this many clothes. And what's really fascinating is I encourage people to, like, go find an old catalog from, like, Sears, right? Mm-hmm. Look up what a dress in the Sears robot catalog from 1955 would cost today if you adjusted that for inflation. It's way more money than you could wrap your head around. Like it's, you know, I think a basic day dress is like gonna be like over two hundred dollars. Yeah. But it's because everything was way better made, higher quality, and people took care of their stuff. They mended it. Sometime in the early two thousands, when we transitioned to this fast fashion culture, the rise of H and M, Zara, Forever Twenty One, right? All of a sudden, we're like cool right I mean I thought the same thing I grew up the mall was a half an hour away there was the same stores the same product all I ever wanted that's why I got into fashion is like I had these garments in my mind and I couldn't buy them you know and then the first time I walked into a forever 21 I was in high school I think I was a sophomore or junior in high school and it blew my mind I was like there's all of this stuff and I love it all and I can afford to buy five things and like amazing right it blew everyone's mind but now it's out of control right like this whole concept of like I have a specific occasion like I'm going to Coachella so now I have to buy festival looks like we're all about like being able to have the Instagram like never wear the same thing twice and like, if you want to talk about how do I become a sustainable consumer, it's to stop doing that. It's to look at your own closet and say, hey, I've got a lot of stuff here. Like, I've worked in the garment industry for 13, 15 years now, right? i got a lot of clothes, right? You get free stuff. You get yeah. sample sales. I've got, I got more clothes than I need, let's be honest. You know, I keep a lot of them because they're nice. You know, I might not wear them ever, but it's like, oh, I'm going to get rid of it. But, like, I don't, I don't need new, I don't really need new stuff. Like, I have really started looking at my clothes, weeding out things where I'm like, okay, for sure, never wearing this again. It's not me. Donate it or try to sell it. I, I'm big on our um, local buy nothing group, and I'll post, hey, I've got a bag of clothes. Someone comes, grabs them, right? Like, someone that needs stuff for free take them right and I'll put nice stuff in there I'm just like I don't care just take it so I try to like look at what I have and things I really like like I was wearing when I was in Big Bear took out my one nice wool sweater well a moth got to it chewed out the elbow I'm gonna mend it like (laughs) it's still a functioning sweater there's nothing wrong with it but like Meredith of 15 years ago would be like well too bad chuck it out the window even though 
I know how to fix things, I would just be like, you know, really, you, you can think about it. And you're like, man, yeah, I did all that. You know, this doesn't work. Throw it out. Appliance, clothes, like whatever it is, we're just, we're trained to just this planned obsolescence, like just get rid of it. Doesn't work. Why fix it? Just get something new. Right. And that's, that's got to change. That's what has to change. That's the best way to become, to become sustainable is in all aspects of your life. Don't throw shit out. (laughs) If you can keep it, if you can fix it, if you can put it on your buy nothing group and say, Hey, this is a broken widget. Does anyone want it? Someone might, someone might need it as a prop for a play. I don't know. Like so much stuff already exists in this world. Right. Don't necessarily need to buy something. So it's important to think about that. I think we all should be thinking about that. I agree. Or even, yeah, like donating stuff if you don't need it or trying to sell it. Or if you do need something, maybe you need like a little organizational bin or something like go to a thrift store, go to Goodwill and see if you can find something. If you need a jar, I know there's lots of like jars and vases at Goodwill. So it's like, oh yeah, you need one. Okay, go get it. You need some decor. You really want Christmas decor or whatever it is. Like go find some that somebody donated at Goodwill that's in good condition. I mean, you don't have to buy a piece of junk, you know, but it's like, if you can find something, do it yes. that way instead. Um, and then also I really appreciate that a lot of brands, not a lot, but there's some brands now that are offering like mending services. Like I know that Patagonia offers that. And I oftentimes now will even like message a brand, you know, cause they'd have their, their email list or they'll have their customer service email. And so I'll send them an email. If my product is like defective or something or if a seam rips I'm like hey do you offer do you offer mending services like would if I can't fix it myself or something or I'll you know bring it to the dry cleaner or something and get them to bring the waste in or get them to fix a seam for me if I don't want to do it myself so um that definitely helps a lot and there's something else that you said earlier oh people taking much better care of their clothes too obviously we have these like modern washer and dryers and a lot of people used to line dry their clothes or hang dry them and I definitely try to do that with especially with my higher quality pieces of clothing Um, especially like active wear which people don't really think about they'll wash their Lululemon leggings and they'll put them in the dryer and I used to do that too and it totally like wears out the spandex and ruins it yeah so I try to uh, like hang dry all of my active wear to also prevent spilling which I know bothers lots of people in the fashion industry but um yeah yeah absolutely that's a great way I mean you're also saving energy by not drying your clothes for sure so like yeah anything with elastic spandex we all have that old pair of socks that just doesn't do what it's supposed to do anymore and that's because you've fried the elastic or like mm-hmm. sports bras you know old sports bras used to just have that elastic around the bottom and those right. would just go out over time it's that heat from your dryer it yeah. destroys everything same thing with like fabric softeners and, and if you ever use bleach like that just tears down the fibers yeah so anything like uh if you have vintage t-shirts wash them inside out so that it mm-hmm. protects the load or whatever you know screen prints on there and yeah, line dry when you can definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing that you mentioned for my active wear. My top two tips would be never use fabric softener, only wash yeah. them with detergent, <laughs> use a gentle yeah. detergent. And then yeah, like just line dry them because that'll preserve them the best 
way they yes. can. It's the best way to preserve them. I wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of fit. And I know that you were a fit model for a little bit working in the industry. So maybe a little bit about your experience. Well, so I was like an unofficial fit model. I, <laughs> I tried when I was a student. Um, I got a rejected because of my low hip measurement. I've got some junk in the trunk, always have, always will. Um, and back then that was not popular. So I was turned down, but a fit model for anyone that doesn't know every brand, this is why clothes fit differently everywhere. One of many reasons, right? Based on the target customer, your own size chart, your own grading, as well as like how you like to fit um, those are the criteria for selecting a fit model. So fit models are required to maintain their measurements as much as possible um, because they're basically a living mannequin. would be the best way to describe it. Um, their goal is to represent your fit on the body and a good fit model is able to talk to those things like, hey, you know, the chest feels a little tight, but I do know you guys like to have a fitted bust point. So this might be okay. Like giving good detailed feedback um, about fit is a sign of a great fit model. There's good ones and there's bad ones. Um, and it's also not uncommon for brands to change their fit models over time, right? So um, at Mod Cloth, we did that. When I started, we were more of like a junior's fit our fit model was very straight, very slim, you know, had barely had a bust, you know, it didn't have much of a waist shape. She was very like rectangular, but that's like a true junior size small, right? Like, you know, you're thinking girls 13, 14, um, for those curves knocking. Um, but over time we decided we were going to kind of make our size small a little bigger, uh, for a couple of reasons. A, we weren't really targeting that junior's customer. Our product was not super cheap, um, but it wasn't super expensive. So we were kind of targeting more of that girl in college instead of the girl in high school. It's very common. I know most people are like, oh, I wore my top uh, to homecoming in high school, right? That was like the big thing. Um, but we kind of transitioned out of that into like a more like common contemporary fit, if you will, um, which is a little larger. So we had to adjust our size scale and we picked a new fit model that was in line with what we were targeting, right? So if you ever bought from a brand for years and then all of a sudden it doesn't fit you the same anymore, that might be one of the reasons. I'm always the ad hoc fit model most of the time, especially when I'm doing fit comments. I like to try things on myself and see how I feel. You know, it's really interesting because you do fit on one body primarily, but a size small looks very different. Like it can look many different ways. And the more you go up in size, the bigger variety of body types that fall within that size. So it does make it challenging to get a good fit across all sizes because, you know, someone might be a, a size large that has like a really big bust, but another size large might have like a you know, average size bust, but she might have a little extra underneath, you know, her arms or her back. So the way weight is distributed and where fullness lies really can change the fit. So there, that's what is hard about alpha sizing, which is small, medium, large, right? It's like saying, hey, 
this is a big window, but could fit into this box we're calling a size small. But, um, you know, that means someone who's a size small might not fit it, and another one might. So it's hard, you guys. Like, it's hard. It, if you go back in time and fashion to the days of yore, there were, you mostly had clothes made for you. If there was any ready-to-wear, like in the early uh, 1900s, right, it got tailored to you. So I would encourage people to stop thinking that they should be able to walk into a store and find something that fits them. Ideally, yes, but, like, that's just not the reality. Find yourself a great tailor. You know, your local um, dry cleaners will most likely be sufficient enough especially if you need just like a waist taken in or something let out slightly, you know, basic alterations, zipper replacement, etc. Um, find someone. It's worth to spend that extra $10, $15, $20, knowing that you're going to feel great in it, right? When something fits good, you're, you feel like a million dollars. So that's what you want. So if you can spend $15 and like go from feeling like okay to a million dollars, yeah, you should do it. And you'll keep that piece longer, more than likely, because you like how it fits, right? So it's little things like that. I think we're sold this bill of goods, like, oh, I can go to the mall, or nowadays, you know, you shop online, you have no idea what you're getting. But if something really speaks to you, and this piece is like, yes, I need this, whether it costs $20 or $200, take it in, let it out, like, Get those little adjustments made so that it fits you perfectly, and then you'll wear it for a really long time. Yeah, I agree. That's a really good vintage hack, too, is just getting mm-hmm. stuff altered. If it's, It could be a size too big for you, and you can just take it in a little. Um, yeah, or going to just, like you said, like an alterations, a specific alterations place instead of a dry cleaner might even be a little bit of a better option. Yeah, sure. um, but I do remember you saying one thing in class that stuck with me about like looking for jeans specifically and I do this now it's like you want to make sure that the hip it fits you well through the hips right and like it's okay if the waist is a little bit loose because I have the same problem it's like my proportions you know they're not what I guess they're basing these sizes on so it's like okay I'm gonna have to bring the waist in a little bit so that when I sit down, my pants don't come off. So, um, yeah. yeah, just taking your jeans to get the waist taken in a little bit and buying a size that maybe doesn't fit you perfectly, but you can get a perfect fit if you just alter it yeah. a little bit. And know, especially now that most clothes are bottom line, know that size charts lie. So size charts are very general especially if you're buying her from a website that's not a brand, you know, a website that does sell other brands, like that's just going to be a general guide. Like do not use that as a Bible. Uh, um, I wish it was, but it's not. For example, talking about my well-endowed hips, my low hip sits me at the upper end of a medium or like a size eight. Um, But most of my jeans that I buy are either a four or six. But it's all where my weight is distributed. Like, I have, like, an athletic build. So it's more just, like, kind of in the back. So I'm able to, like, not squeeze into, but I'm able to fit better into the smaller sizes, even though generally, like, if I if I have my own website, my own clothing brand, and you, Miss Bell, were coming to shop, and you're like, I'm trying to figure out what size I should buy. And I'd take a look at the pair of pants you wanted to buy, and I'd say, hey, the most fitted point on this garment is the waist. You should base it off your waist size. 
right? That's the general rule of thumb, um, especially if you're buying a dress, right? If it's got a fitted waist, uh, you want to like size it off your waist, right? But like I said, it's not the it's not the Bible, it's not the law. Like it's very gray. <laughs> so if you use the size chart and you're like, oh God, I needed a size up, or man, I really should have sized down. That's okay. Like the size chart is a guide. Do not look at it like the end all be all. And your life is not defined by the guide either. I have this problem all the time where I'm like. With rompers, I got a really long torso. I just need to size up. And it took me forever to be like, just buy the the next size. Who cares? If it bothers you that much, cut the tag out of the garment. Like, focus on things that fit you. Because then you'll just feel better regardless. So every time I try to, like, buy a size small romper, it, like, rides up my butt. And and I'm just like, the whole time, I'm like, why? Why did I do this? Like, I should have just bought the next size up. It's not a big deal. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that like, go into size and a lot of it's in our head. So just try to be blind and just try things on and either it fits you or it doesn't and just move on. Yeah, I totally agree. Something I've also realized recently is like, just because a garment fits you when you try it on, that's not necessarily going to be the fit long term, you know, things stretch mm-hmm. and, um, it might like feel comfortable when you try it on, but you know, over time wearing it maybe it doesn't get as comfortable so and also just kind of learning like okay maybe I made a mistake purchasing the size maybe it was a little too tight and I took the tags off and I'm like okay well I have to wear it now but um (laughs) just being like okay I made a mistake and being okay with like letting go of that piece of clothing like okay like now I know that I need to buy a size small or something and not the tighter size but Mm -hmm. not just like hanging on to those clothes being like oh darn it um yeah and yeah. just finding stuff that no, actually... Know when to hold you. them, know when to fold them, no. as the song goes. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a favorite part of your current job? My favorite part of my current job is... I mean, it always is uh, pattern corrections. I'm a nerd at heart, and that's why I kind of fell into technical design... Technical designers are basically garment engineers. So we're not the ones that come up with the ideas, but we're the ones that make it happen. But we kind of work in the shadows. No one knows we exist, right? So I have, like for years, just tell people, you're a what? You're a technical designer? Like, fashion designer? Yeah, fashion designer, sure, whatever you want to call it. Um, but just think of it, we're the engineers. So we make it happen. Um, I really wish someone in school would have encouraged me to go into pattern making when I was in school, it was like, it's a dying art, like, you won't get a job, blah, blah, blah. And really, only if you were in fashion design did you get a, a good chunk of, like, actual pattern drafting classes. You touch on it in the other majors, but it doesn't really deep dive. So most of my knowledge I've gained on the job. Um, and I, if, if I regret anything, it would be not, like, studying more pattern making and going hard into that because it is such a useful part of my job. A lot of technical designers, like like myself, when I started, had very little pattern-making experience. I knew about patterns. I had made patterns. I would used sewing patterns, commercial patterns, which aren't really real um, many times throughout my life. But I didn't really pick up those real drafting skills until I 
really worked at Lucky Brand. That's where I learned a lot of it. And then I just continued throughout my career. So you run into technical designers with very little uh, pattern making experience. And those tech designers are not good. Um, they don't really understand. Like you can pin something on a garment, but that doesn't mean that you can actually make a correction there. So it's really important in my job when we do fittings. Um, and usually you can fit a garment Usually we fit like four to five times before something actually goes into production from like the proto stages um, through production fitting. You can, you can touch it a lot of times before you actually send it on its way, but you can pin something and then you look and you think, okay, this is, this is the problem. Then I open up the pattern and it's like, oh, that's not the problem at all. Like you, it could be something completely different and not seeing that pattern not being able to have eyes on it is like, it, I mean, that can make or break the style. You could go and fit and refit and fit, but until you actually see the pattern and say, oh, that's why this keeps on getting messed up, or this is why this, this rise doesn't fit properly. Like, if you don't see it, you're never going to get it. So it's such a integral piece of the puzzle. And it's also very, like, in this age where everything's digital, it's nice to have something that's very, like, just hands-on, old-school, piece of paper, pencil, ruler. Like, it's an art. It's a trade, right? It's, like, I mean, really, like, FITM, back in the day, it was, like, a trade school. Mm-hmm. And it kind of still is. You're learning a trade. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's something super valuable. Um, and pattern making, I feel like, has gotten a bad rap because of technology but seriously if you can do it you make a lot of money doing it (laughs) because no one can do it anymore so yeah if there's one regret it would be not like going full steam ahead into pattern making but um but yeah I still use a lot of those aspects um in my job and that's definitely my favorite part of it from what I've the experience I've had in school um technical design is very like tedious and very hard job I respect like (laughs) <laughs> any technical designer, any pattern maker, because that was definitely not my strong suit. But, um, yeah, there's, like, a lot of math that goes into it. And I think mm-hmm. people don't realize, too, with sewing and pattern making, like, a lot of the times you're looking at the garment from the inside out. Like, you're looking at the seams. You're you're sewing garments inside out. So it's really easy to yeah. get confused. <laughs> and then you, yeah. you know, turn it back right side out, and you're like, wait, like, I didn't realize I sewed the shoulder seam to the hem or something I don't know but oh yeah yeah guilty yeah very complicated and then (laughs) ripping seams no no of course I put the cuff on wrong yeah it's always like the last thing you do too and you're like okay where's my seam ripper gotta take it apart now (laughs) but yeah I've been fortunate enough to have worked with a lot of old school pattern makers as well as new school so what's really interesting about my current company is that around 75 to 80% of the product is made domestically. And that product is handled by a team of pattern makers. I manage the import side, which is a very small piece of this puzzle. So it's very different than most companies I've worked at where it's primarily domestic. So I have the luxury of working with, you know, our pattern makers raise, there's one my age and then there's you know, on the other end, there's one that's been doing it for like ever. And she's, they're all amazing and they all have so much knowledge and I can bounce like, Hey, this is the fourth time I've seen this short, like bottoms are not my forte. I've, I fit like tops and outerwear most of my career. So 
I still like I can see the matrix when it comes to an armhole, but when it comes to a rise, I'm like still still working on it. But it's great to have those women around to like bounce ideas off because like they've been doing it either forever or just even a short time. They just have so much more knowledge and expertise on the area than I do. So I'm always if I'm in a job and I'm not learning, it's not worth it for me. I am forever a student. So I just like to learn and pick things up as much as possible. And that's, I think, one of the best things you can do when you're in a job. Newsflash, the perfect job does not exist. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find your dream job. This whole idea of a dream job, it's not really there. But a lot of things are what you make it. And so even when I have been in those jobs, they've been really tough, really hard, bad work environments, toxic you still have to think, what can I get out of this? Like, how could I benefit in some way? Like, you're there. So you have to not make the best of it, not be like, okay, I'm going to put up with the stuff. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're in a position and you can't get out, you know, you don't have another job lined up, really try to think, like, what can I pick up from this? What am I getting from this? And focus on that. So always use it as a learning opportunity. And if you're not learning and growing, no matter where you are in the food chain, it's time to leave. I agree. I really like that point of view. Even if, you know, like for me, I've kind of stepped a little bit back from the fashion industry for a bit, but um, just trying to learn whatever you can from whatever job you're in and seeing how you can apply it in the future if you want to, you know, change industries or get back into an industry you're working in before, um, seeing what kind of skills you can take from that to apply it to that later on. For sure. really valuable. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Meredith for joining me on this week's episode. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you learned a thing or two about sizing, sustainability, and the nuances of the fashion industry. Anything mentioned in this episode is linked in the show notes and be sure to stay tuned for part two coming next week. You can follow Flavor of Fashion on Instagram at Flavor of Fashion Podcast. And if you like this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And I'll see you next week for another taste of the world fashion. Bye, guys.